welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 First Avenue North on the third floor. Uh, You would probably um, have to live under a rock uh, for the past few weeks not to have heard uh, about the controversy, uh, the drama, the problems uh, with famous Hollywood producer and director Harvey Weinstein, Uh, whether it's cable news, social media, radio, uh, so much has been said and written about Harvey Weinstein and and really the atrocities that he was a part of. One of the words that has sort of floated around this story, the story of Harvey Weinstein, uh, is the, the word, the term, the phrase, open secret that what he was doing was an open secret in Hollywood. It was sort of a thing that everybody knew, but no one wanted to talk about. And we look at the story, uh, the tragedy of Harvey Weinstein, and the tragedy that he committed on others, and we think about the term open secret, and that's it's a pretty awful thing. That people knew of folks who were being hurt, and didn't do anything. Open secrets are pretty bad. I was thinking of what could be worse than an open secret, uh, and the only thing that I could think of would be a celebrated secret. Right? Imagine if Harvey Weinstein's stuff was not just swept under the rug, but celebrated. That would not be okay. What's interesting is Paul as we continue to look at 1 Corinthians, is transitioning. He's transitioning out of this section where he is talking about the way that they have divided themselves up among the leaders. And he's transitioning to the, uh, shall we say, celebrated secrets of the church in Corinth. And this one's a pretty good doozy. In Corinth, apparently, there was a guy who decided that it would be best for him to sleep with his mother-in-law. Now, this is a pretty crazy thing, right? To sleep with your mother-in-law, let's just get this out on the table, it's not okay. In case there's any questions about that. I'm sorry, it wasn't his mother-in-law, it was his stepmom. Even weirder. Which is a terrible thing. But what was really bad, what was the really weird thing about this? was that the response of the church in Corinth was not to say, uh, hey, you're sleeping with your stepmom, that's that's at least an 8 on a 10 scale of messed up. The church at Corinth decided that this is something worth celebrating. Hey, look, we have a guy in our church who is so free in Christ, he can sleep with his stepmom. Isn't that great? What a great church we have, right? There is... There is some shock and awe to that. Can you imagine a church where somebody was doing something that everybody universally agreed was messed up? Uh, Paul's going to mention in the chapter that we read today that, that even the Corinthian neighbors who had no religion, who were amoral, thought that what this guy was doing was not okay. And yet the church in Corinth was not saying, oh, that's bad. They were saying, hey, He's been forgiven by Jesus. Everything is fine. There are no problems. Everything is awesome. He's on the Jesus team, so it doesn't matter if he's sleeping with his stepmom. 
this is uh, a messed up situation. And it begs the question, what in the world could make the church at Corinth think, oh no, it's not only okay that he's sleeping with his stepmom, but this is something we should celebrate. We should be proud as a church of this. What could be going on there? The Corinthians had a problem. And it's not too far off of our problem. The problem with the church in Corinth was that they were using their freedom in Christ, the forgiveness that they had felt, to start to act just like their culture. Because in Corinth, as in our day, there is one thing that is true. The only thing that is forbidden in our culture and theirs, the only thing that is forbidden is to forbid others from doing what they want. Think about that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that again because it's, it's wordy, I know. The only thing that's forbidden is to forbid others from doing what they want. You can do anything you want except tell me what to do. I don't care what you do. You should not care what I do. I'm okay. You're okay. Let's just be okay. And you go away. Right? This is why we have the phrase, mind your business. Right? When someone tells you what you're doing is okay or not okay, specifically when they tell you what you're doing is not okay, what do we say? Mind your business. You can go. Bye, Felicia. Fill in the blank with whatever phrase you want. When, we, when someone tells us what to do, we promptly tell them, stop it, you can't do that, that's out of bounds. What I'm doing is not out of bounds, but you telling me what I can and cannot do, that's the thing that's out of bounds. And that's true of our culture. The only thing that's out of bounds is telling someone else what's okay and what's not okay. And, and where this comes from is our culture has this, this deep and abiding sense that, that we are individuals. And there's no sort of community. There's no sort of sense in which we are connected to one another. And that, that dovetails, that goes together with the way that most of us would, well, maybe not us, but many people would call themselves spiritual, not religious. I'm, I'm sure you have heard this before. I'm spiritual, but not religious. I'm spiritual, but not Christian. This is sort of the default view, especially here in St. Pete. You go anywhere in St. Pete, and you stumble into a spiritual conversation, right? This is something I do a lot, because when you're getting to know somebody, what's one of the first questions when you get to know somebody? What do you do for work? And all of a sudden, I tell them what I do from work, and either the conversation gets really interesting or really weird. Nobody casually says, well, that's neat, and moves on. Either they're like, okay, bye, and I don't want to talk to you, or they want to talk a lot to me. Right? There's no in-between. And when I talk to a lot of people in St. Pete, they often say, I'm spiritual but not religious. And one of the fundamental differences between being spiritual and being religious, and in our case specifically Christian, is that spirituality can't tell you what to do. 
Christianity can't. Christianity says, there are some things that are okay, there are some things that are not okay, here's roughly the list. But spirituality doesn't have that. Why? Because if I'm dabbling and kind of taking a salad bar approach to spirituality, I'm going to take a little bit of it. I like the ritualism of Wicca. I like the kind of chillness of Buddhism, so I'll grab that. You know this Jesus and forgiveness thing? I'm down with that. I like that, so I'm going to grab some. And sort of when you fill up your plate off of the buffet of spirituality, where do you stop? You stop when any one of these faiths, any one of these religions, any one of these worldviews starts telling you, here's what you have to do. As soon as any of them say, this is okay, this is not okay, our response, many of us, and certainly the response of many people in St. Petersburg is to go, and that's where I draw the line. I'm okay with Buddhism as long as it doesn't tell me what to do. I'm okay with Jesus. He told these great stories. He did some really interesting things. But as soon as I start reading what he had to say about some of the more difficult areas of my life, I, nope, I'm out. And we have insulated ourselves from criticism by being spiritual, but not religious. Spiritual, but not Christian. This was the problem in Corinth. This is the problem in our day. And so what I want to do is I want to read this chapter where Paul begins to lay out this really messed up situation where a guy is sleeping with his stepmom. And the church is proud, not shocked. So if you would, stand with me as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's what it says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, and with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that he might be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that even a little leaven leavens up the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go, not to go out into the world. But I am now writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those who are inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So purge the evil person from among you. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated.
one of the great things of preaching sequentially through books of the Bible, uh, like we do here at City Church most of the time, is that it often makes you preach passages you wouldn't necessarily do. When I sort of sat down on, on Tuesday and started to study for the sermon, sort of looked at it and went, uh, there's things I'd rather talk about than this. There are places I'd rather go than this. And it's interesting because it would be easy for us to get caught up in the craziness that is the guy sleeping with his mother-in-law. Sorry, stepmom. Whatever. Both are messed up. Stepmom. It would be easy for us to get sidetracked in that. And what's interesting is Paul is going to talk more about sexuality and, and why that's a big deal in a couple of chapters. But this passage is ultimately not about this guy sleeping with his stepmom. What this passage is really about at its core is the way that the church responded to it. It's not so much about the guy and his stepmom. The problem is the church and their response. Because their response, like ours, is that we are quick to judge those outside the church. And we're hesitant to hold our brothers and sisters inside the church accountable. Think about that. This is really true for those of us who are Christians. This is an indictment on us. We are very quick to cast shade and judgment on those outside the church. And we are very slow and hesitant and cowardly when it comes to holding our brothers and sisters inside the church accountable. So I want to break it down onto those two sides. How are we supposed to respond to people outside the church? How are we supposed to respond to people inside the church? Because that's what Paul is talking about. It's interesting, as he re read through that, as we read through that passage, he says that we're not supposed to associate with sexually immoral people, and then he lists off other things, right? He says also those who are uh, swindlers and idolaters, and, and this kind of laundry list. And he says, but I don't mean that you're not to associate with them like never see them. Because if that was the case, you would have to go and move out into the country, have a commune, and as soon as you became a Christian, here's your farm, because you can't meet anybody who's not a Christian. Right? It's an impossible thing. The, the sort of Amish, Mennonite, Anabaptist tradition has been trying it for years. And Paul says explicitly, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about retreating so that you never meet anybody who does something that you find morally wrong. He says, look, for those people who are outside the church, for those people who aren't Christians... God will sort them out. That's not your job. You see, it's really easy for us to want to take the job of God. We do this all over the place. And one of the areas where we like to step in and play God is when we begin to judge people. Those people. Those people over there who do those things. Them's the bad people. The, I know where to find the sinners. Insert place here. And we want to step in and be the judge. And, and Paul says, no, that is very much not your job. 
God is going to be the one who's going to judge everybody. God is going to be the one who sorts us all out at the end so you can settle down. So you can not pass judgment on them. And so as we look at this, God's call to us is to not judge those who are outside the church. It's interesting. Every week when we take communion, one of the things that I say is, uh, if you are not a Christian, communion's not for you. Uh, and if you feel like you are being judged by sitting by yourself and not taking communion, here are the other ways that you can sort of handle yourselves during communion. We really mean that here at City Church. It is really okay for you to come to City Church if you're not a Christian. We are okay with you being here. We're excited that you're here. And it's not our job to judge you or to fix you. That's God's job. Now, if you are here and you are in that case this morning, the question that sort of could be asked of you is, am I feeling conviction? Do the things that he's saying ring in my heart in a way that I can't quite figure out? And if that's the case, we'd love to talk to you. But the problem is for us, who are Christians, is that we like to judge other people. And we especially like to judge other people who are outside the church. And the reason why is that in our hearts... Most of us are still six-year-olds. You. Y'all. Me. Are in our hearts basically six years old. Because here's what our self-righteousness does to us. Whenever I look around and see somebody doing something bad, see somebody doing something that I know is wrong, it's really easy for me to start to look at what they're doing wrong. Because if I'm focusing on what somebody outside is doing wrong, I don't have to look inside. I say you're six because if you've ever been around a six-year-old who is in trouble, and you say, six-year-old, why did you do the thing? What is most six-year-old's response? Well, but, but other kid was doing other worse thing. I'm okay. Son, you, you started a fire in your room. Yes, but Johnny burned the house down. I'm okay. Look, look at the exhibit of the person who is doing something worse than me. We deflect all of our guilt and shame onto other people out there so that we don't have to self-reflect about our own sin. Self-righteousness. The idea that I've got it together, that I can prove myself to God, that I can make it work, always leads us to deflect to other people's sin so I don't have to deal with my own. If I keep looking at those people out there and how bad they are, I don't ever have to worry about this person in here and how bad I am. Because if I get quiet, 
there's a lot of stuff in my life that should probably make me uncomfortable. There's a lot more messed up in my actions than I care to admit. But that gets real uncomfortable real fast. So what do we do? We start looking around for somebody around us, somebody outside the church, somebody who's a bad person, and go, well, at least I'm not the Harvey Weinstein. Sure, I have problems. Sure, I have addictions, sins I can't shake. But I'm not Harvey Weinstein, so I'm, I mean, I'm ahead of the bell curve here. I'm doing all right. You see, it is our self-righteousness, our propensity to want to justify ourselves that always leads to us looking at other people's sins and keeps us from examining our hearts. And so Paul says, look, the people that are outside the church, not your problem. Not your problem. The people that are inside the church, your brothers and sisters, that's actually your problem. That's actually who you should be looking around at. It's interesting. Uh, imagine an old uh, 1700s warship. You know, big schooner, right? right? Or, a, you know, some other sort of big ship. And imagine on the crew that they're all there and they're in their cabins and they're going off to war. They're sailing from Britain to whoever Britain was fighting at the time because they were always getting mad at people. And this British ship is sailing across the sea and one of the army men turns to his buddy who's in his bunk and says, what you doing? And the guy is sitting there and he's drilling a hole in the floor of the boat. Oh, you're drilling a hole in the bottom of your bunk in the boat? Well, that's none of my business. I'm just going to carry on. Why does that not work? Because if he succeeds in drilling that hole through the boat, whose problem is it? That is that has suddenly become everyone in the boat's problem. We as Christians cannot take a that's your problem attitude to those of us who are in the boat together with us. We are genuinely connected. We are genuinely a community with one another. This is one of the reasons at City Church we use one cup and one loaf. Because all of us are in this together. We eat the same bread, we drink the same wine. And so when Paul says that don't worry about those outside the church, but you actually do need to worry about those inside the church. Because he says that when he has his strongest words, it's for those who call themselves brother. Not for those who don't want anything to do with Jesus. No, no. The people who are inside the church, who call themselves Christians, who, and, and the, he alludes to the Old Testament, this idea of sin with a high hand, right? Which is not something we sort of normally recognize. We don't always recognize this idea of sin with the high hand. But it's, it's something like uh, the way that in 1968, Tommy Smith and Joe, uh, 
forgot Joe's last name, uh, in the Olympics. They won the 200-meter dash. They won first and third in the 200-meter dash. Uh, and they raised their fist in solidarity with the civil rights movement. They were saying, we're black and proud. It was a, it's become a symbol of black power, right? And sin with the high hand is sin that's saying, I'm sinning and proud. You can't stop me. Here's what I'm doing. Now, some of you raise your eyebrows and go, oh, I, I don't do that. But do you? How many of, of us have things in our life that we know are wrong? That we know are wrong and decide, eh, I'm going to do that anyway. And not only am I going to do that anyway, not only am I going to violate my conscience, I'm going to violate my conscience and say, it doesn't matter. I can do what I want. Paul says that if that's the case in your heart and mind, that's when we're in danger. He says, when we are unwilling to admit what we're doing is wrong and repent of it, that's when we as Christians are in danger. Because it's violating the very spirit of what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian, we must be the people that are willing to not flinch away from our sin. To not deflect with what the other people are doing that's bad, but willing to, to do the hard work of self-examination, of honesty, and looking at our hearts and going, yeah, this is not okay. This is messed up, and this comes from inside of me. And when we are unwilling to recognize our sin, unwilling to repent of it, that's when Paul starts to talk about what they're supposed to do. And he uses this sort of strong language, right? He uses language like, like cast them out, give them over to Satan, and don't eat with them. Right? That's... On a 1 to 10 scale of harsh, that's very. Very. But Paul gives his reason for this. He says, the reason why we do this, the reason why we hold one another accountable, is not to punish or shame others. And nowhere in here does he talk about punishment or shaming. What does he say? The reason for this is so that His Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So that we might repent. If we are being unrepentant, if we are saying, I'm doing this, you can't stop me, get off, mind your business. Paul says the reason why we do this is so that we might repent. So that others might repent. And it's interesting as he walks through this that it begins with a personal relationship. It begins with us knowing and caring for one another. And I think there's something really hard for us as Christians in this text, which is this. It's very easy for us to deflect our sin and criticize others outside of us. What's really hard, what's really difficult for us, is to be honest with our friends. Be honest with our friends when they're Christians. And what they're doing is sort of that closed-fisted, 
I'm going to do this and it doesn't matter. Why? Because if we start to talk to somebody about what they're doing wrong, it could get weird. It probably will be awkward. And Paul says, Paul says, are you willing to risk your relationship with someone in order to see them grow and repent in Christ? I know I know I struggle with this. Even as a pastor, there are times where I go, mm, I don't want to talk to this person about this thing. I would rather not. And yet Paul says, the way that someone will grow and repent and change and see Jesus at work in their life is not by us going, everything is fine, nothing is wrong, let's have a party, but is rather by being genuine and honest with what the Bible says. See, most of us either struggle with self-righteousness or cowardice, with wanting too much to judge people who are outside of our fellowship, outside of the church, outside of our Christianity, or by being cowardly and not wanting to address the elephant in the room, the open secrets. But the good news of this text is right in the heart of it is this, that Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. The lamb that was sacrificed to spare the people from the punishment that they deserve, to spare them from death, that is Jesus Christ. And when we, when we look at this passage, one of the things we see is that, again, we're reminded that what? If we believe that we have little sin, that, that we just did some stuff wrong, and we repent of just some little stuff, if we turn away from just some little stuff, Jesus can only show us a little grace. But if we're bold and honest and genuine about our cowardice, about our self-righteousness, if we really admit the way that those things are rooted into our hearts, all of a sudden, we see that the grace of Jesus is bigger, richer, more beautiful than we imagine. You see, our experience of grace is always directly related to our willingness to confess. And he says, Jesus is our Passover lamb. And then he does something really interesting. He connects our life in Christ to the other part of the Passover meal. To the other part of the Passover ritual. In, in the Old Testament, when they celebrated Passover, yes, they sacrificed the lamb, but the other thing they did was they got rid of all of the leaven out of their house. Now, I learned something this week, uh, which is not hard, because there's a lot of stuff I don't know, but I always, in my mind, thought that kind of yeast and leaven was the same stuff. I always, I don't know, they're, they're, they're bread stuff that makes bread stuff into bigger bread stuff. It turns pitas into bread. Beyond that, I think they're roughly the same thing. But they're not. Uh, yeast is wild and naturally occurring. It's in the air all around us. Uh, but leaven is not. What leaven is, is like, um, so it's like friendship bread and kombucha, right? One of these things, these are generational divides, especially here in St. Pete. So uh, friendship bread... 
Um, some of you have never heard of it and have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, is this bread that you make and somebody has to give you a starter for it. And then you put it together with the ingredients and you make the bread. And then what do you do? You give a pinch of that bread to your friend. And they do... Friend? Huh? Friendship bread? Yeah, you see... Right? And you give them the hunk of that bread. What you are giving them, when you give them that pinch of bread, is leaven. Is the leftover dough from your last batch of bread that's then kneaded into your new batch of bread. And in the Old Testament, what they would do is every time they would make bread, they would pull the pinch off, let it sit, until they made bread again. Right? So this bread recipe, this, this leaven, was continuously a part of them. This, this is why when you go to like a real bakery, like a for real bakery, why their sourdough bread is so good. Because a lot of them have these lumps of leaven, this sort of leftover starter that's been going for years and years and years. People will travel across the world to get a pinch of breads that some of them, like, there are some places in Eastern Europe where they can trace their leaven back hundreds of years. And their sourdough bread is from this sort of chain that goes back forever. Kombucha, it's the same thing, right? You get a clipping of the mother, you make, you make it. I, 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 I realize that if I, you know, go through that whole thing again, it's just the same thing twice. Thank you for understanding. When the people of Israel celebrated Passover, what it meant is that every year their bread their starter would start over. Every year after the Passover, they would start fresh with a new lump of bread. So they didn't have these years and years and years old leaven. No. When they came to the Passover meal, they took all of the leaven out of their house. They got rid of it, and they had to start new. Paul says in this passage... Because we have experienced Jesus, we are now a new lump. You are no longer part of the leaven that you came from. You are no longer a part of the cycle of sin that you inherited from your parents, from your community, from your life experiences. You have been made new. So let's start acting like a new lump. Let's start acting differently. Let's start doing two things specifically this morning. One, being a prophetically counterculture community. The church is counterculture. We are always going to be the people that are accountable to one another genuinely for our brokenness, for our messed upness, that are bold and seeing others and saying, that's not okay. You're doing damage to your life. You're doing damage to what's going on in your community. But not only are we prophetically counterculture, 
we are radically loving. The new leaven that we have been given holds intention, being prophetically counterculture with being radically loving. Loving to the point of scandal. How can you love that sort of person type of love? And that's the new leaven that the Passover lamb, that's the new bread that we as a church are being made into. May Jesus do that here at City Church. Let's pray.